0: Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. We are hosted by Renew.org. If you don't know much about Renew, I just would suggest you would go to Renew.org, check out what we're all about and our six tenets that we really focus in on. Today, we continue to have our track session audio available. And we're really excited about this because it's a lot of great content that came out of our 2023 National Gathering up in Indy. In this episode, Clayton Hensel talks about a couple really cool discipling opportunities that have worked for him personally and his church and specifically his church staff. The main one that he hones in on today is the idea and the concept of having people live with you as a disciple making opportunity. He has been living this out for years and his staff has as well so he provides really good insight on what it looks like to close up disciple somebody that lives with you and provide a really good opportunity for someone to pay off student loans. Be able to save up for a down payment on a house and really just get a head start in ministry where housing is so expensive, rent's expensive, and he describes what it looks like to have someone live with you, disciple them intentionally, and also help them out in their life. So it really is in many ways a holistic type of discipleship. I know in my own life when I was an intern at the church, this was cr- really helpful for me. I lived with a few different people while I was in college and it really made a big impact on my life and my walk with Jesus. So let's go ahead and see what he has to say. I think this will be a really helpful podcast for a lot of leaders that are looking for more intentional ways to disciple others. Let me tell you how I ended up
1: here. I think Matt Wilson did something wrong and he's trying to like, uh, you know, pay me back and he's pulling in favors, which is I think how I ended up being a, a speaker at this thing. And my hope for you, I'll I'll tell you a little bit of our church's story, I'll tell you why I'm at Renew, and then I'm hopeful to give you uh, three uh, quick things, and if one of them is a gift to you, that's the win. So you may have to sit through two that you're going, that's dumb. We went all in on the uh, Real Life Ministries Disciple Makers about 10 years ago, and we went... Hired a ton of staff, did a ton of um, investment, ton of training, and we did it for like four years, and then we just basically gave up and just kind of walked away from it. Our church continued to grow, and now we're in a spot where I'm going, asking the real question, is what we're doing as a church legitimately working? And before we try to make a huge elder switch, congregation switch. Um, I'm here personally at Renew and whatever the thing is next. I just got the group ticket. So whatever, what's the next thing called? Yeah, whatever that, yeah, whatever that one is, I'm coming to that one too. To so really kind of do just a gut check internally of like which road do we as a church want to run down and what do we want to implement, but I'm actually doing a lot more of it at the gut level. And so I'm actually here way more on the learning curve than I was ever expecting to do this, but I got the phone call, which I think someone feels like they owe me a favor. So I apologize for you being here, but I will add value to your life. There are three things that I believe uh, we have successfully done in our church that I have seen move the needle in significant and strategic ways, and one of these three is going to be a win for you. Probably not all three, but at least one of the three. Uh, the first one on the personal discipleship side, um, our staff culture has kind of stepped into this unique niche. Let me explain it this way: How many of you uh, were, you know, went to a traditional Bible college to go into ministry at a regular church? Any of you went that route? Okay. How many of you you were an intern at some point in time over the summer at a church? Yeah. And how many of you, you just lived in the basement of the rich person in church's house while you were getting your start in ministry? That was how it worked for me. I went and lived at the youth pastor's house for uh, a season. And then I would live at the rich person's house who had a house that was too big for them. And they would just have, you know, me hang out with their awkward kids. And that was kind of how I started off my ministry careers in people's basements. However, there was something about that uh, time in my life that was actually very compelling that made me go long-term, my wife and I, we want to invest in people when they're in that age demographic. And so what kind of happened at our church is we just keep having people live with us. Uh, And here's what I mean by that. If you were to do the math at your church, take however many people you have come to your church— That's how many empty bedrooms there are in your church. There are people in houses that are way too big that have rooms in their homes that they could actually bring people into their life and do life on life with them. Now, let me tell you uh, how the paradigm shifts there. When you're not just looking at people going into ministry, but you are just looking at the subset of people between the ages of 18 and 30. What do you know about the age group of people between 18 and 30? Here's what I know about them in my neck of the woods. More than likely, they did not grow up with a spiritual man in the home. They have not seen an intact family operate at a high level. They want to be a good husband. They want to be a good mother. They don't know how. They want to be a good Christian parent. They don't know how. They long for it, but they have none of the tools in their toolbox to accomplish it. They're broke, they have student loans out the wazoo, they cannot afford to buy a house, and so they are gonna be stuck in forever renter. Or you go to them and say, how about you live in our house with us and you become a part of our family? Um, what ended up happening is I'm going to run through all the lists because I screwed up if I don't say it all. Here's all the people that have lived in our house. Um, well, hold on, let me back up. There are two big challenges that I see to discipleship. One is the time commitment. It takes a ton of time to make a disciple. Two, a willingness for them to go on the prolonged journey. The nice thing about having them move into your house is you solve both of those problems. You're going to have all the time in the world to disciple them, And by default of them living in your house, they've come underneath your authority, so they're going to be discipled. The moment they don't want to be discipled, there's the door. Like if you don't want to live in our environment and be a part of what we're doing as a family, because my family's being discipled, and we've had a couple people hit the door. So here's all the people we've had uh, live with us. Uh, My sister lived with us. Then my sister and her family lived with us. Then Jake Epperson came to live with us. And he lived. With, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't make it. And Jake's a great kid now. If you're hearing this in the future, Jake, but he didn't last long. Um, then we had a girl named Lisa Davis live with us. I didn't meet Lisa Davis until she moved into my home. Um, my wife met her uh, and started to care about her. And then she went away for the summer. And then on a phone call in the early part of the summer, my wife said, "I think you should just move in with me and my fa- my family." My wife came home and told me that. And so I just waited two months to meet the girl named Lisa who was going to live in our house. But she met Jesus at our house. And then when she got married, she had the executive pastor of our campus uh, do the wedding. But she let me walk her down the aisle, Um, which was kind of a big deal for me because I never got to walk anybody down an aisle. Um, Then we had a guy named Biscuit live in our house. That's a real name. Um, He lived there. Uh, A guy named Ryan Garrity. Uh, both of Biscuit and Ryan Garrity came on staff at our church, were employees of our church, and are still in ministry at our church. And then, believe it or not, my sister's family, again, moved into my house. We've, we've since kicked them out. Actually, the neighborhood kicked them out. We had too many people living in our house, and the neighborhood said, that's not, that's not, that's not okay. Um, here are the wins, the pros and cons, because you're sitting there going, Clayton, that's a young man's game. This is dumb. One, they're incredibly helpful around the house. You have your own built-in moving crew of adults. So anything you want to do, you want to knock out yard work around your house, you've got a whole bunch of people that are now a part of your family. So when it's time to pull weeds, you just got that many hands pulling weeds in your house. When you decide to paint a room, you have that many hands. The cool thing is, more than likely, they are learning how to pull weeds, how to sharpen mower blades for the very first time because they've never had an attentive uh, father figure or an attentive mother figure. Um, it's a great source of joy for my kids. My kids have always loved it. Uh, they have always enjoyed it. We have huge financial, uh, or we have hu- very specific rules. So I don't want you thinking that like, I would get up on stage at our church and vision cast. Hey, everybody have people come live in your house. Jennifer and I think about a, a group of people. We will pray about it. Uh, basically what I mean by that is if my wife says, okay, we just do it. That's kind of like what it, what it turns down into. So I didn't even get to be a part of the conversation about Lisa moving in, but, uh, they pay rent. Like it's not a, I mean, I I can't afford to feed. I mean, when Biscuit and Ryan were living in my house and they're both taking 45 minute showers and they're eating like grown 20 year olds, I can't, I don't have that kind of margin. So you pay, you pay rent to live in my house. Which is fine because it's incrementally only more, that more expensive to feed six people than it is to feed four people. But for them, they're able to save money for a future down payment on a house, get themselves into a different car. But uh, like we have young kids. So like I just told them, here's the line in our upstairs. If I ever see you on this side of the line upstairs where my kids are, um, are you living in my house has come to an abrupt end not that I don't trust you. It's just that I don't ever want to have to wonder. So like you can live in my house, but if I ever see you pass this doorway, I don't care if I'm upstairs. Like you have to ask permission to cross this little spot. Here's what I can tell you. I started doing it. And now every member on our directional team has had people live in their house. Other staff members are starting to have people live in our house. And the people who live in our homes end up coming on staff getting incredibly serious about their faith journey and it sets them up for a much brighter future. So this is something you don't have to ask anybody for permission for. You just have to go, I have a spare room, which Christians in the first century were known for their hospitality. They were known for going, well, they didn't go, we have extra room. They just said, we'll make room. But there are all, I mean, we have, an, we have a, a 19-year-old worship leader at our church, horrible family. He lives with an 80-something-year-old woman. She doesn't charge him rent for him to live there, but he takes care of the yard work and picks up the groceries for So an older woman isn't having to give all of her income to a nursing home. She gets an opportunity to love and pour out wisdom on a young guy who's had a really crappy home life. He gets an opportunity to add value to her and you've created a symbiotic relationship and it didn't cost anything in your church budget. Number two, Um, you can come back and ask other questions. Well, let me end this one, let me end this way. Here's the question that Jennifer and I have asked ourselves. How many sons and daughters of the faith will we have? Um, So we have our natural born kids, but how many more can we have? How many people are going to go, yep, that person was my spiritual father. And they weren't just like the person who discipled me at Starbucks on Tuesdays, but they legitimately brought them into my home and said, live with me, walk with me. You see everything about me, highs and lows, which depending on how you and your marriage are wired, you'll fight quieter when you have strangers in the house. And sometimes fighting quieter is a good thing. Um, Okay, second thing. Uh, This is what we did. So that first one's uh, personally. Second one I want to talk to you is corporately. What did we do to kind of ratchet up the discipleship game at our church? So we had a problem at our church. Um, We know the power of dedicated time away for spiritual growth and renewal. You're here, you get it. Um, This summer, I'm guessing right now you are all doing signups for your kids to go to camp. Right now. Yep. You think that's super important, right? Yeah. You've been doing it for years. Uh, The problem is we get our kids on fire for God and we send them home to lukewarm parents. And so we were going, like, at what age do you stop carving out time in your calendar for spiritual growth and renewal? So we decided that we uh, were going to do something about it. And we also read all the statistics, like wherever the man goes, the family follows, but we ended up doing this for women too. So what we realized is our church will never reach its fullest potential without men passionately committed to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so we believe that our greatest return on our investment in ministry is directed towards the spiritual engagement of men in our church. So we did decide to do something about it. We launched a conference called Uncommon, and the tagline is, because ordinary isn't working. And they, uh, men in our church know that ordinary isn't working. They are spiritually, they're dead. Occupationally, they're bored and burned out. Relationally, they're empty. Sexually, they're embarrassed. They're either not in a healthy place with their spouse or doing devious things to fill the void. Financially, they're not finding any satisfaction. Many of the men in our church, I don't know what it looks like at your church, are living through the cry of Ecclesiastes. They're just experiencing meaningless. And what do we want to do about it? So uh, our elders totally believed in what we were doing. And they gave us permission uh, to have zero budget dollars to launch this incredibly important initiative. And so we did. Uh, We launched it with zero dollars. We put it on credit cards. We believed that it would turn out. Uh, We decided to do it crazy simple. You're going to go, Clayton, this is really the gift you want to give me. I'm not kidding you. This is the gift. We picked a man of the Bible, good or bad. We talk about it for three sessions, one on Friday and two on Saturday of what God did with him or in spite of him or through him. Not uh, as a promise to be expected, but as a template to be followed. And uh, this year past year, we did Gideon, the highs and lows. So here's the story. Uh, year one, we started it in 2014. We had 406 people in attendance and we, couldn't we were tickled pink. Um, it has grown every single year. We've never had a down year. Last year, we ended up doing it in two different locations. The second one was Matt Wilson's church. Uh, We ended up taking a team of 29 people from our church, and um, 11 of them were just, only 11 of those people were staffed. The other group was a bunch of guys who, like, it was their first missions trip. Because, you know, if you go from Democratic State of Illinois to a Republican South Carolina, Mm -hmm. it's a mission trip. Um, Here's the beautiful thing. So this year, we had 985 people attend uh, our uncommon event and 50% of them got involved in a D group, a life group or a gripe group, whatever you guys call them at, at, at your church. In other words, our most successful D group assimilation tool people pay to participate in. In one weekend we pull off a fantastic event that moves the needle of engagement as far as attendance, giving, serving life groups and our men pay for the privilege to show up to sign up for the thing that we would have begged them for multiple weeks to sign up for. So we're like, if that's how they operate, let's just double down. This is fantastic. So then, we'll, uh, so here's what it is. And you're going to be like, really, this is it? It's just 24 hours of spiritual focus. Noon on Friday to noon on Saturday. Just give us 24 hours with you, a group of guys, and God, and see what happens. Um. Then what happened is, is after year one, we had a desire to take uh, and make this a gift to other churches. So we intentionally didn't brand it as the crossing. We branded it as its own thing uncommon. We do all the planning, all the theme work, all the Ableton, all the multi-tracks, all the work, all the videos, all the promotional materials, all the sermon breakdowns. We have an entire team that helps people with signups, promotions, and budgeting. We do our best to send people to your church to pull off the event on our dime, Uh, leaders, facilitators, worship people, tech people. Uh, Basically, here's the job of a local church to recruit people and have fun. Our goal is to get the amount of work that a church has to do to pull off an uncommon event down to under 20 hours plus the event. Um, We do our best to give you all the seed money to pull it off. Um, If you're a lead pastor, let me say this. This uh, uncommon has never cost our church any money, which is a great thing when you want to talk to anybody else about starting their ministry. The biggest ministry in our church has never had a line item in the budget. In fact, it makes money every year, and then it uses the money that it makes to help other churches start what we started. Um, Just so you know this, uh, when I sell this, nobody on our staff takes a single dime, a single stipend, nothing. There's no like backdoor, like, Hey guys, buy this book that I just wrote. It's, there's none of that. Uh, we do it all for free simply because we just know it works. Um, so this year we're doing it in Illinois, South Carolina, Florida, Idaho, Arizona, Ohio, and Indiana. Um, so seven years it took to get it to, uh, two different places. And then who knows what'll happen next year. Um, Here's our guiding principles for the uncommon event. Any pastor that you interact with gets to go for free. So if you bump into a pastor at a coffee shop, you tell him he gets to come for free because you know just let him show up and enjoy church and not have to worry about where did people set up the communion. So like if you decide to host an uncommon event, you just sign on to pastors get to come for free. Just tell them to show up and treat them like a king and love on them and give them everything you possibly can at your church and then bless them on top of that. Uh, We have a son price. Uh, So like a dad costs 65 bucks, a son costs $40. It's a $40 no matter how you call him. So if you're, you know, if you have four generations coming to your church, everybody who, as long as Papa pays, everybody gets to go for the grandson or the son price because we don't ever want to get in the way of giving a guy an opportunity to be the spiritual head of his home and make a spiritual investment in future generations. Uh, We tell seventh graders and down really not to, or sixth grade and down not to come because, you know, sometimes we talk about grown man stuff. Um, Here's the deal. This thing, so we have a big engagement dashboard at our church that tracks on a monthly basis how many people are active, how many people are serving, giving, how many people are in a life group. Um, It tracks all those things, how many of them are doing. And you can look on our calendar and every year this is what happens. It just keeps ratcheting up every year. So we used to stand on stage for weeks on end and say, "Hey, would you get into a life group? Hey, would you get into a D group? Hey, would you go on a discipleship journey? Hey, are you unsatisfied where you're at?" We did all of the different, and now we just say, "Hey, do you want to come?" The most fun thing we're going to do all year, and they say, "Yeah." And then when they're there, after they get all their heart on fire for the Lord, we're like, "Don't you think you should probably learn how to live like Jesus so you can tell other people about Jesus?" Like, "Yeah, I probably should." And they all 50% of them, 50% of them just do what they always do, which is disappoint you. But 50% of them go, yeah, I think this is, I think this is obviously my next step. So the most, so now one of the most enjoyable things we do at our church is a conference or a small group sign up disguised as a conference, and uh, it keeps moving the needle. And it would be our example of working harder, not smarter.
0: Have you ever wondered what the Bible says about male and female roles in the church? Maybe you have felt unsure of how what the Bible says about this lines up with modern culture is it even applicable today. If you have felt this way, we encourage you to go to YouTube and search male and female, a biblical look at gender. This is a special six part series produced by Renew.org to help Christians navigate what the Bible says about this polarizing topic and how to apply these teachings in your context today. If you would like to listen to this series, go to your preferred podcast platform and search the Real Life Theology Podcast, and they're becoming available there as well. If you would like all this great content in book form, you can go to Amazon.com and look up Male and Female A Biblical Look at Gender to purchase Renee Sproul's new book with all this great information in it. We just highly encourage encourage you to check that out and grab a copy today as well and share this series with anybody who may be struggling with this topic who wants more clarity about how to understand it apply it and follow king jesus more clearly today
1: okay last one this is the last gift i'm gonna come over here so i can look like a teacher i wanted to make it more official um here is my leadership gift to you the other ones were like practical ministry stuff um, this was a framework for me that helped me articulate 15 years of frustration in a leadership role because uh, I had led through a lot of vision casts. I had led a lot of staff meetings, staff trainings, and at some point in time, I was just completely fed up with, like, I've already said this. Why isn't this just who we are already? And so what I want to take you through is what I call the six stages of ownership, So you're getting ready to leave here and you're gonna go back to some group of people and you're gonna say, hey, we should start having people live with us. Or hey, we should start a men's conference or a women's conference. Or hey, we should start making discipleship a priority at our church. Here is what you can expect. I wanna let you get out your binoculars and look into the future. Uh, Because any vision cast, any initiative, any solution you're trying to implement or chase, any idea you wanna implement Here's what happens. First thing is everybody hears it. Stage one, everybody in the room hears it. That's it. That's stage one. You've passed. Stage two, processing it. Uh, some of you, you have, uh, you would identify, self-identify as you are a fast processor, and some of you are slow processors. It's not that you're bad. You're just different. You have different RPMs. You have different torque. So you're the person who goes, Ah, oh, man! I re-, and somebody asks you, How do you feel about it? You shouldn't talk yet because you haven't processed. You need 24 hours to like circle back and go, this is, what I'm, this is what I'm thinking. Here's what, well, I used to perceive this as an alignment issue. That people who are slow processors were actually not in alignment. And I would see that as adversarial instead of them just being hardwired differently. They just heard it. And now they're processing it. We're not stopping at processing. So why am I getting frustrated while they're in the process stage? This is about how God hardwired them. So I can't ask them to process faster. This is in their DNA that God put there. Like this is how they're just naturally wired by God. So you hear it, you process it, then you understand it. After you've processed it, that's when you start to go, you, you have knowledge of the why. Why? It makes sense that you would pursue this particular agenda. I understand why discipleship's important. We want people to love Jesus in the future. They finally go, okay, I understand the why. You're like, Clayton, I don't know if I agree with you. You're processing it. <laughs> Four, agree with it. You can understand it and still not agree with it. This is where you agree publicly. This is when you're in the room and people are nodding their heads. "Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm, mm. You're preaching the sermon. You got a couple people in the front row. Mm, that's good. Yeah, amen. And I used to think that that meant something. It doesn't mean a thing. They're just agreeing with you. Then fifth stage is you implement it. Agreeing is, I think this is okay, but I'm not doing it. I'm not not doing it. I'm not intentionally not doing it. I just, I'm not doing it. This discipleship move is great. I'm not not discipling people. I'm just not discipling people, okay? Then someone implements it. This is where it begins to get lived out at your church. You get excited, you get fired up. This is fantastic. You've made it so far. Look at all the great things that are happening. You're ready to put your weight behind the vision, but this is external. They might be doing it because they're submissive. They might be doing it because you're the boss. They might be doing it out of fear. They might be doing it out of obligation. You can get anybody to change diapers in the baby room once. Do you love Jesus? Paul was in prison. Get in there, change those diapers. Okay, You'll get everybody to do it once. They'll implement it. But hear me, you can agree with all kinds of things, but until you implement them, you are not committed. This is where movement happens. This is where growth is created. This is when the flywheel begins to turn. And then here is the last one. You own it. This is when you carry the vision like it's your own. You begin to dream about what this could mean for your church, for your community, for the people you love, for the people you want to reach. You don't stop when it gets hard. You look for coaching on how to succeed. You become hungry to make a difference. You stop making excuses and you start self managing. You start seeking out coaching. When you get the coaching, you actually do what they told you to do. How many of you have people in your life that they literally just call you not to fix the problem, I'm not talking about your wife or your husband, but they literally just call you to tell you about their problems with no intention of ever doing any of the things of the advice that you give them. I try to get those people out of my life as fast as possible because I'll go crazy. Like I cannot function, I can't function in that environment. We have a person we have a couple people on our staff who they have like seven spiritual fathers. They just it's Monday so I call Clayton, it's Tuesday I call Denny, it's Wednesday I call Craig, and now you have like seven spiritual fathers all trying to cook the spiritual son stew instead of, because they just want someone they don't want to implement anything, they just want to be able to talk about the problems. Now, here are the mistakes that I've made. You guys probably haven't made these, but in case you haven't made all these mistakes, let me go before you. Hearing it once, these are mistakes I've made. Hearing it once is not enough. How many times have we said things? The answer is probably not enough. I've made a commitment to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. Here's the reason why. The things that matter to us get repeated often. I tell people all the time I'm thankful for them. I tell people all the time I love them because it is important to me that they remember those things. If there is a key strategy, a key vision, a key initiative, it needs to become as much a part of my vernacular as I love you and I'm thankful for you. Second thing is processing is not adversity. I lost a lot of good relational uh, equity with people that I was friends with on staff because I did not understand that them processing it was not them being adverse to the vision. And I would pick a fight mid-process instead of giving them time to actually process it and then discuss. I mean, you can probably guess, I'm, I'm a little type A, and I'm, 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 I'm this way all the time. And so like the moment someone's like, I don't know if I agree with people living in my house, I'm like, well, how could you not? This is what the Bible's like. I don't even give them time. So I had to learn that one. Um, speed is not about ability, but about wiring. Uh, if I were to cast a vision in here, depending on how you're wired, if you're hardwired more towards worship, like you were like, could we do two more songs? And some of us were like, can we sit? Like, can we get back to the teaching? That'd be fantastic. Some of you are hardwired to like serve. Like we've been here all day and all we've been is consumers and we haven't done anything to like wash someone's feet. Depending on who you are, you're gonna perceive the information completely different. And so when you walk into a room full of introverts and you talk about, you know, spiritual disciplines, they're like, this is great. And all the extroverts are like, I don't, I don't, think, I'm, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can read that many books. And it's not that they are against what you're talking about. They're hardwired differently. And sometimes you're just throwing a softball to somebody's natural hardwiring, and you just need to give people who have a different skill set time to figure out what the manifestation of that vision cast looks like the way God hardwired them. Understanding is not adequate. This one broke my heart. People understand all kinds of things, but they don't walk it out. So... uh, I know, I'm just going to use me, so that way I don't use you. I know that eating right is important. And you know that I don't implement it. Okay? I know that working out is super beneficial. You know I probably don't implement it all that much. People can know a thing is right and still not implement it. And I would be in staff meetings looking at people giving me the We do We got to They'd even go up to the whiteboard And contribute And they know the good they're supposed to do They just Yeah, they just don't do it Like every pastor in America Complains about how bad social media is But name one Pastor who's not on social media Like he he just You keep They keep You keep going to it Myself included Uh, Next one is Implementation is only External affirmation Not internal commitment that's what Pharisees were. Pharisees and Sadducees were whitewashed tombs. Their hearts were far from him. They desired mercy, not sacrifice, or, but God desired mercy, not sacrifice. You can have a whole bunch of people on your staff who will do the thing that you're asking them to do. But if you got hit by a bus, that program, that ministry is dead on the spot. It's the first thing they're canceling. And where I failed as a leader for a really, really, really long time, is I did not give people the time and I did not put in the energy to move that needle as far into own it as humanly possible. So here's what happened at our church. We spent well over a million dollars going all in on the uh, Putman relationship or relational discipleship. We did all the teachings, all the trainings and we would have an intentional leader and a biblical foundation and a reproducible, we did all of it, all of it. And then the guy who was on staff left to go work at another church and then we just kinda like, I guess we're done now. And so all that time, all that energy, all that money, all that training because everybody on our staff really just got to implement. It never became like a part of our DNA. And if something never gets to the, if we get impatient or we get lazy and we don't ever get it into the DNA level of who we are, where if you tried to stop it, people would fight you for it, um, you'll be in a deficit position. So three potential gifts. One is for you on the personal uh, discipleship strategy is realize that God gave you a gift by more than likely putting an empty room in your house. And that empty room will bring you more joy if you fill it. The second one is there is a strategic way for you to get a bunch of people connected to your church and to take big steps by just making a more significant investment in them and their spiritual development because you know it's good for you. That's why you're here. You know it's good for your kids. That's why you send them to camp. Why isn't it good for mom and dad? And then the third thing is is for you as a leader when you're trying to vision cast in any level, there are six stages and you got to make sure you get all the way to the end. Otherwise, you really didn't get anywhere. I know that uh, everybody on my directional team Uh, has people living in their, I mean, has had people live in their house in the last year. A couple of other people on staff have moved people in. So, I mean, it is is a, I'm not preaching this from stage. We're just living it, modeling it, and then people get jealous of it. I get nervous saying it from stage uh, because I do not want to be liable uh, for the stupid pill that somebody else takes because I know who I'm letting into my house, but I'm not advocating or setting up who should move into your house. Um, so I can, I can give people coaching on how I would do stuff, and we'll do that. I mean, we've even traded people. Like uh, Ben Elfritz, who's on my staff, like I had a person, and then they just went to live with him after a while. And then uh, it was kind of like a draft. There was two people, and we kind of took one, and they took the other. I feel better about it when it's staff. And I think that when, you, when people start seeing the joy of it, um, actually, everybody on my directional team has had multiple people live with them. And once you start seeing that it's fantastic, I mean, everybody has their bumps and bruises, but um, I think it's the future. I don't think kids are going to, I don't think 30, especially at six and a half, seven percent interest rates, 30-year-olds aren't going to be buying homes. And they're going to want to do all kinds of weird things. So one of the guys was in my house. Ha- well, both of the guys who were in my house found their girlfriend, got married while they lived with us. So like we got to be, you know, whatever you want to call that. Uh, I offered one of them to stay with us. Get married, live with us for two years, get all the way out of your student loan debt. And we'll just keep doing the $300 a month, which basically covers your food and water. And he wanted to go out on his own, and he did. He's a great guy. Man, he's great. He uh, got, a, got a dog and then got her pregnant, uh, all in the right order, but um, married, dog, <laughs> pregnant. But now, if you were to ask him what's his biggest regret, it's that they didn't move into our house. I said, I can put insulation in the ceiling. Like, we're going to be fine. <laughs> but the... He wanted to be out on his own. And now he's got a dog that's no longer a puppy. It's no longer, it's past the cute stage. He's got to figure out how to navigate childcare. He's got, he can't buy a house. She wants to be a stay at home mom doing daycare. She, they can't afford to buy a house to have a big enough house to have more kids for daycare. And they're in a financial doom loop. And he's going, if I could just go back and live in your house and park my car in your driveway and have you wake me up mowing the yard and know that I have to weed eat, if I could go back to that world. Um, I think as pastors, it is an awesome thing to have people living in your home and they get to see your, they get to watch you close. And you get to be, and they get to realize that you're the real deal or you're not. And um, I mean, they heard me and my wife fight. And, you know, they picked her side, which, which is, I get it. I'm afraid of her too. But holistically, it's, it, it's precious to me. When I married my wife, she had a daughter, and her daughter has a great dad. But I, for eight years, or for 10 years, she was living with us. And I was the one who picked up college. I was the one who helped out with the car. But when it came time to walk her down the aisle, she wasn't picking stepdad. She was picking dad. And, like, I never got to have a little girl come up and sit on my lap. You know, I never got any of that. So then little did I know that when we invited Lisa to live in our house, that I would get to fulfill the dream of walking a girl down the aisle. And I'm like, how much, how much do you put on that? Or, um, you know, when your wife gets a pillow with all the kids' names, or they want to do a family picture, and my sons have, I don't think they're old enough to comprehend that all these people are not our family. Because my boys have seen all of these people live with us. So, like, they just expect them all to be at Thanksgiving, Um, anyhow, it's a, it's a, it's an easy button and it's a very rewarding one.
0: Thank you again for joining us on our podcast today. Looking forward to our next track session next week. And if you're unfamiliar with renew.org, we just invite you to go to our website, check us out and see how we may be able to partner with you and your church in helping provide resources and disciple making materials. We'll be back with you next week.